Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Rebecca Andowski and Kathleen Thomas, two haunting names never forgotten by people in Hampton Roads. They're the first two victims of the Colonial Parkway murders, both found dead this day 30 years ago. To this day, no answers on who killed them. Ten of your side's Andy Fox is looking into this case. Andy, so long to wait. Any new breaks in this mystery? Yeah, Tom and Anita, there are developments, I am told, but nothing imminent with any big announcements from the FBI or Virginia State Police tracking any of the four cases. Tonight, only on 10, an exclusive interview with a former head of the local FBI who was in charge when it all began. Thursday, October 9th, 1986. Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca Andowski. Last seen at Dowski's dorm room at the College of William & Mary. That Thursday night, believed headed to the Colonial Parkway. 10 on your side begins reporting the case. Three days later on Sunday evening, that car, a Honda Civic, was found off the Colonial Parkway. It had been rolled into these bushes, almost into the water. 30 years ago, Irv Wells, now retired, had just arrived as the special agent in charge of the FBI's Norfolk Field Division. He remembers the rage or the killing, overkill he calls it, a lesbian couple taken by surprise on the... Hello and welcome to episode 188 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's episode, we will be wrapping up our conversation with the one and only Bill Thomas, the number one advocate for the Colonial Parkway murders and the murder of his sister, Kathy Thomas, in 1986. So please join us today as we conclude our conversation about that string of murders between 1986 and 1989 that hit the Colonial Parkway. And boy, did they drop the ball on this one. So as we were talking about, you know, I had this idea that we take 100,000 of our best and brightest from the United States military and move them over into permanently funded positions in the military move them over into permanently funded positions in law enforcement with a goal of looking at reducing this 250,000 cold case homicide list by half in 10 years, much like we did when Kennedy uh, announced when I was a kid that we were going to put a man on the moon in 10 years. I think this can be done. I just think we need to put time, attention, and resources into America's backlog of unsolved homicides. When I was a kid, the homicide solve rate was over 90% in many cities and towns across America. It's now in the mid-60s, that is like 65% or so, and plummeting every single year. So even though we all enjoy watching those procedurals on TV, CSI, etc., they're misleading us on some level because they make it sound like most murders are solved and that most murders are solved in 48 minutes or less. And I'm here to tell you that's nothing close to the truth. We're seeing cases like ours just drag on and on and on. And then terrible things happen every single day 
and our cases just keep getting pushed further and further back. I think that's happened with the Colonial Parkway murders, with the Shenandoah murders, and many other cases across the country. And it's all about lack of resources. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the uh, moonshot and going, you know, putting together the Mercury program and Apollo and all that other stuff. Um, actually watched the right stuff just recently and Speaking actually of, never had seen it. Oh, you're kidding. It's one of my I, favorite movies. I, I don't know why I'd never seen it. And it was fabulous. I mean, yeah, it, it's a wonderful movie. It, it aged well. I mean, yeah. It's from 83, but it's, uh, it's a really interesting look into what it took to get our people to space. And it's, uh, it's, it's an intriguing movie for sure. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's a good example of how, if you put the right people in place, you can accomplish the impossible. And that is something that we're kind of talking about here. And, yeah. yeah. um, like in your, for your specific case, you know, it went from like Kathy was the first, and and Rebecca, um, what happened after that? Well, after Kathy and Becky are killed in October 1986 on the Colonial Parkway, I'm sorry, after Kathy and Becky are killed in October 1986 on the Colonial Parkway, approximately a year later, a second couple, Robin Edwards and David Knobling, were murdered at a place called the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, which is about a half an hour or so away. And that took that location outside the national park. So that was a murder of a couple who had met that day. She was quite young. She's only 14. He's 20, 21. And Robin Edwards and David Knobling were murdered and their pickup truck his pickup truck was found first and the bodies were found three days later that case was investigated by the national that case was investigated by the virginia state police i was gonna say okay and then the following april now we're up to april 1988 a couple on a first date Keith Call and Cassandra Haley go missing after a college party and they're actually never found, but Keith's Toyota Celica is found on the Colonial Parkway quite close, about a mile or two away from where Kathy's Honda Civic had been found a year and a half before. And so that case is back with the FBI because it's within the confines of the national park. And then finally, the fourth incident, the following Labor Day, uh, two people who are basically traveling companions, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, went missing along Interstate 64 while they were driving from Amelia County, Virginia, which is up near Richmond, down to Virginia Beach, Virginia, along Interstate 64, they went missing. Their bodies were found about six weeks later, about a mile from the rest stop, where they think they stopped. 
And then that case was also a Virginia State Police cases. So we have two and two, two FBI cases and two Virginia State Police cases, which may be, by the way, one of the reasons why these cases have gone unsolved for so long is initially a lack of coordination between FBI, Virginia State Police, and local law enforcement. And the irony about that is we've talked about 9-11 and... I mean, that was a big failure on all of our agencies' parts because nobody communicated with one another. And if they would have communicated, they could have probably prevented that uh, tragedy from occurring. But I think they've sort of started communicating better and sharing information. But yeah, those like agencies, you know, they were competitive with one another and therefore they didn't share a lot. And it's just so detrimental to the public. And you see that with things like 9-11, and you see that with, uh, you know, obviously the Virginia State Police not communicating with the National Park Service and then the FBI. And, you know, it, it's a lot of uh, people dropping the ball, but um, things getting lost in the sauce. Right. Post 9-11, I think that level of coordination for law enforcement agencies did get a lot better. It had so, to. Uh, well, it, it did, and 9-11 certainly highlighted a lot of problems, terrible problems that we saw, even lack of coordination within the FBI itself, where, you know, we had, you know, these odd behaviors by these um, later terrorist attackers taking flight classes around the country and then them not putting two and two together from a law enforcement perspective. Obviously, our our point is not to point fingers at who's responsible for 9-11 or whatever, but the, the good news is the coordination and information sharing with law enforcement is certainly a lot better now than it was then. Yes, and, and that's a good thing. But like you mentioned earlier, there's the negative thing, you know, the cause and effect of taking an agency that wasn't designed as a terrorist, you know, agency or anti-terrorism agency, and then applying 90% of the resources towards that. I think it's, um, it's something that needs to be readdressed. Agreed. And it's something that we're not going to let go. I mean, I've had some, pretty blunt conversations with our FBI agents. And I've said you know, to them very clearly, look, we're not going to let this go. Experts tell me the Colonial Parkway murders is a solvable case if you put time, attention, and resources into the case. So what we're looking for is time, attention, and resources. I'm not implying that the Colonial Parkway murders are more important than any other case. But for us to be told, well, your sister's case is a cold case, therefore it's the lowest possible priority. I understand that when people's lives are in danger and there are cases that need to be moved on very quickly, I understand that they're going to take the first position. But that doesn't mean that nothing happens on a brutal homicide series 
involving eight young people. You just don't get to say, well, I guess we dropped the ball on that one. That's not an acceptable answer. Yeah, it's not. And it's, uh, unfortunately, it's something that we live with on a daily basis. And like you had said before, bad things happen every day. And Mm -hmm. so you don't get that attention that your sister's case deserves as much as you want to to be the case they just don't have the resources to do it do i think that the resources do exist out there absolutely and uh i think that we just need to be more pragmatic about what we do with those resources and not just throw a bunch of money at one thing and hope for the best agreed and then even though i'm from a navy family and a military family you know, we're spending too much money on America's military. We need to put more money back into law enforcement, actually. And by the way, when I say that, I don't mean law enforcement going out and buying military-style equipment. That's a complete waste of time and money. I'm talking and another about... another podcast. <laughs> yeah. totally another show. I could yeah. Do a that whole is season a com- on that. Completely another show. But advanced forensics and solving these cases... That needs to be done and can be done. Interestingly, one of the things we're finding as families, and I've really studied this stuff, as you know, in the last decade or so, private labs are way ahead of the FBI now in terms of cutting-edge forensic testing, but we're running into a problem where I've proposed repeatedly to the FBI that... We use private labs, and they keep pushing back saying, we don't have the budget for that. And I've even offered to have the Colonial Parkway Murders families engage in fundraising, which we're willing to do, we've done in the past, in order to pay for these things. And then the FBI tells me, oh, we can't accept gifts of that sort. And I said, okay, now we've created a catch-22 here. You're telling me the FBI doesn't have the resources. When I offer to find the resources elsewhere, you tell me, oh, we can't accept that. And I said, you know, this is not an acceptable answer either. You can't say, we don't have the money. Oh, and by the way, if you all as families have a bunch of car washes and and, uh, GoFundMe campaigns and raise the funds, we can't accept that. I mean, I'm sorry, that's not an acceptable resolution to the problem that we all share. Yeah, I've always wondered that, you know, the whole public-private sector thing, when it comes down to things like infrastructure, um, providing money for testing, uh, you wonder like all these super uber rich guys and I know they're not, you know, Jeff Bezos isn't about to hand over $10 billion for anything. Um, Why not? I'm an Amazon customer. Oh, I'm an Amazon customer too, (laughs) but it's his yearly charity donations are garbage and everybody knows that. So if he was willing to, I mean, we see what Gates does. Um, I'd even, I'd even dial down my criticism of Amazon if if uh, Jeff Bezos would pay for you know, testing just in our case. It's like 
some of these people that could easily, you know, Bill Gates puts billions of dollars towards solving world issues. I get it. And then there's the people that are going to be like, well, Bill Gates also started COVID. And it's like, okay, well, no, you're please. crazy. <laughs> get the hell out of my face. I don't want to hear you. Bill Gates is fine. He owns a bunch of farms now. It's not like he's taking over the world. I don't care what people want to make you think. <laughs> but if he took some of that money and applied it to this particular mm -hmm. issue, and if they were the, turning it down, that's completely backwards for what we would expect from our law enforcement. Well, it's interesting. We may be running into a problem with the feds, which we may be able to work around with the state level. So, for instance, there's a possibility that the Virginia State Police and state agencies might be able to accept our fundraising efforts. Because it's funny, we have 15,000 followers on Facebook alone who are asking us, what can we do to help solve the Colonial Parkway murders and what can we do to support the Colonial Parkway murders' families? And one of the things we're trying to figure out in terms of next steps is how can we accept that assistance that our supporters are offering us? And obviously, this technology could be used for our case and many, many others. <coughs> yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this technology that we've come up with, not we, because I certainly don't know <laughs> jack about genealogical DNA and how it's uh, done, but I do know that the technology has improved drastically just in the last five years alone. Yes. And uh, I know that there are a lot of cases out there that are sitting there just waiting to be tested. And it's just like, accept the money if somebody is offering you a grant or I don't even know what to freaking call it. Like, yeah, there just, are, there are just, ways to do it. And I'm not trying to do anything that's wrong or, 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 or no. against the law or whatever. I'm just saying, look, don't just say we can't do that. How about we talk, talk about how can we find a way to do that? If, if the families found a way to raise the funds necessary to conduct the advanced forensic testing. Let's work together to figure out a way to do that, not just turn us down flat and say, oh, we can't do that. I know this is going to sound silly to a lot of listeners because a lot of listeners are younger and don't remember these kind of things. But, you know, it's like almost if we did like a live aid or like a, well, a farm like aid that. type yeah. of, you know, yeah. concert like to raise money, like, but again, they'd have to be willing to open their books and allow people to test these cases. And I think in some of these cases, they don't want to know what these people or who these people are. I think sometimes, I mean, you hear rumors all the time about the Long Island serial killer being uh, one of the people in law enforcement. Yeah, that's definitely part of the mix. And that's actually part of the mix in the Colonial Parkway murders. Think about as we talked about earlier in the podcast, Bill, there is a sense that many of these incidents 
could involve someone in law enforcement, much in the same way that Golden State Killer case ended up being a former cop. I'm not saying that's the only answer, but it is a possible answer. It could be someone in law enforcement who might be retired by now who is involved in some or all of these cases. But I think we should be grown up enough and professional enough to say, look, it goes where it goes. The investigation goes where it goes. If this ties back into my sister's naval service and her graduating from the Naval Academy, I'm not here as a you know, member of a Navy family. I'm not here to embarrass the United States Navy or the Naval Academy or, or any institution. I'm just saying, as we talked about at the top here, institutional interests can't supersede the investigative concerns. We should take the, these cases wherever they go. And if it's cops, law enforcement, the United States Navy, whatever it is, I don't care. It should be thoroughly investigated and worked to the point where we can actually answer some questions here. Now let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. So I've been in therapy for, I don't know, about 30 years, and I've been taking care of my brain for 30 years. And it's pretty much the way that you take care of your car, because if you don't take care of your car, it gets rust, it falls apart, needs to be repaired. Well, the same thing happens to your brain. So you can do all sorts of different things, like learning a new language or taking power naps to help your healthy brain. But then again, there's also better help online therapy. So, as I mentioned, I've been in therapy for 30 years, but again, I'm not your normal guy. So it is what it is. And I believe that everybody should experience some sort of therapy in their lives. One of the greatest things about BetterHelp is that it offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And the best part is our listeners get 10% off the first month at betterhelp.com slash who. That's betterhelp.com slash who. I agree 100%. And uh, you mentioned uh, some connection with the possibility of your sister's death in the Naval Academy and uh, what is it that you see there that could be a possibility? Well, my sister is part of the second class to graduate from the United States military institutions. In other words, Congress opened up the service academies, including the Naval Academy, in 1976 so the first class to graduate with women was 1980 the second class is kathy's class they graduated from annapolis in 1981 now kathy died under mysterious circumstances just after she left the united states navy so that might not be a coincidence 
there is a strong possibility that something about Kathy's four years at Annapolis and five years as an officer in the United States Navy serving in Norfolk, Virginia, which is right down the road, that may have something to do with her death. Now, she was also investigated by what was then called the NIS and is now called the NCIS for being gay, which she was. And this is before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I know when I talk to younger audiences, they're always like, what is he talking about? It was actually illegal to be gay or lesbian and be in the service. Well, let's just hold our horses on that one because, as you noticed, our rights are slowly being taken away from us. And that, unfortunately, is right in line with the current Supreme Court and their objective to make everybody's lives live in hell. Well, I... I would have to agree. We're not there yet, but it does seem like ancient history, although who knows? We'll see where the Supreme Court takes us um, in in the coming months and years. But there is a strong possibility that Kathy and Becky's murder could tie in to her naval service. It could tie in to this NCIS investigation of Kathy which happened two years prior to her leaving the Navy and actually led to her making the very personal and sad decision to leave the Navy because she realized this was not going to work. As much as she wanted to have a career like my dad had as a 20-year naval officer and my older brother Richard was actually in the service for 30 years. He went to the Naval Academy six years prior to Kathy did and uh, graduated and then went on to med school and worked as a Navy doctor for 30 years. Can you expand on that a bit, on what uh, the reasons that she left? Well, she had been investigated by the NCIS, and she had been challenged by the NCIS in an interrogation, and she recognized that this was a relentless group of investigators that were not going to let this thing go. Now, the skipper of my sister's ship, the USS L.Y. Spear, shut down the NCIS investigation of Kathy at that time, and she went on for two more years to fill out her service obligation. If you go to Annapolis, you owe five years active duty. She would hope to have a career like my father and my brother had, long, distinguished naval careers. She wanted to be a career officer. She was one of the first women to become a surface warfare qualified officer that is to be in charge of a United States Navy warship, even though she wasn't technically allowed to serve aboard frontline warships at that time. It's since changed. She made the decision that since they were so relentless in this investigation of her, she felt like she didn't have much choice here. She just worked as hard as she possibly could at her job in the Navy, but she made a decision which she communicated 
particularly to my younger brother, Jack, who was also gay. And they were a year and two weeks apart, so they're almost what they call Irish twins. And she and Jack were both very close, and they both shared the bond, too, that they were both gay. She made the decision to leave the Navy at the five-year point rather than stay in. And just not deal with the harassment and all that other yeah, stuff that came she, along with it. Yeah, she realized it was never going to go away, at least in that era. Yeah, she did have a, a while to go before things even became, I mean, Don't Ask, Don't Tell wasn't even rescinded until the 90s. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, again, you know, I just, I'm still a little apoplectic over what's been going on over the last week. And, uh, Agreed. Like just uh, really shocking to see people making decisions for other people, and it's just really not how this country was designed. So, you know, whatever we can do to change that dynamic, I think we need to do as fucking fast as possible, or we are going to lose everything that we have gained in the last 50, 250 years. Like, this is bullshit. Not to stand on the soapbox again, but <laughs> sorry, but these are the I'm, real life issues that people are dealing with on a daily basis. And if you think it's okay that this is happening, no, it's not. And if it takes a podcaster to tell you that, then I don't, I, there's no help for you. Total agreement from my end. Yeah. So anyway, back to the current case that we're talking about and so Kathy leaves the Navy, and did she have any issues with any particular individuals that, uh, you know, may have, uh, I don't know, had an issue with her lifestyle? Yes, but I can't get into them here. Okay, and that's totally understandable. But it is, it is something that you have come across, and it has been something that you think may or may not be involved in personally i think it's very likely okay no i'm not gonna beat that because i understand you have uh you have to keep things close to your vest and uh you can't divulge information on an open investigation so that's good news though as far as um you know because and i say that good news being you know, like with a grain of salt, but it's true to an extent that you have somebody that you think may be involved because a lot of times the people just don't have any idea. So it's better yeah. to at least have somebody that you think could be involved. Yeah, well, there's 150 persons of interest, maybe more now. Oh, wow. Okay. In the Colonial Parkway murders. I would say that of the 150 Law enforcement experts tell me probably only 10 or 15 of them are on what they would call the short list. That is, people that are probably still in the highly likely list. At least they have a list. Yeah, I wish they'd show it to me. But <laughs> <laughs> The FBI and even the Virginia State Police, they're not very good at answering questions. They ask questions. They don't answer questions even though I've asked a lot of them. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's some other guys that like to keep things close to their vests. So, you know, (laughs) it is what it is. And, uh, I mean, again, like, I've interviewed the former chief of police of Bay Village, you know, about the Amy Mahalovic case, and I I begged him. I'm like, do you have have at least, like, an idea or you think it's this guy and you just don't have the evidence? And he's like, nope. I was like, Well, is that nope, we don't have the... uh the an idea or nope we're not going to talk about it uh he said no he did not he went he did expand on it and said no there was no short list and there wasn't anybody that he thought um he, he actually went out of his way to tell me that anybody who had been brought up in the media had been ruled out so mm. um, you know it's funny we actually have a number of people that i would regard as active um suspects I joke and I'm only half joking I feel like I know a lot of them um, by name some of them I know personally (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. well I mean I know like for you know I've mentioned it on my show a couple times you know when I was in high school I got some disturbing phone calls and I'm pretty confident I know who that individual is and Mm -hmm. I unfortunately would see him regularly when I lived wow. in Cleveland. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the FBI tells me that uh, they think that um, probably our leading suspect, they think he listens to Mind Over Murder, our podcast. They said he knows who I am, follows me on social media, watches and listens to my interviews, Watched our television series, The Lover's Lane Murders on Oxygen. And I actually stopped them at one point. They brought this up multiple times. And I actually said at one point, have I put myself or my family in danger? And there's this long pause. And then they said, no, we don't think so. (laughs) Which is not the most reassuring thing I've ever heard. I wouldn't go, I I wouldn't be sleeping very comfortable that night. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, Bill, look, if you want to talk about stupid, if this guy is going to come after me because we're discussing the Colonial Parkway murders on Mind Over Murder and here on Who Killed, why not just send up the biggest red flag of all? Yeah, I I went after Bill Thomas because the guy's got a big mouth and he's not letting his sister's murder go. So he's, what is he going to do, show up at my house here? Come on. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that you would say, and I've, I've had this conversation with uh, certain other individuals, uh, authors that we will not mention, uh, about, you know, hey, if I approach this house and they do kill me, well, at least we know who it was. Who it was. <laughs> well, I, w- I don't think I'd be that flip, but I also think this guy would have to be incredibly stupid and insane to come after the brother of the murder victim because, you know, the Colonial Parkway murders families are pushing for answers in our case. I mean, that makes zero sense. And I I can't worry about that stuff, you know? I'm not going to lie in bed at night, you know, worrying that that fool's going to show up at my house. I would recognize him if he came to the door, I will say that. Yeah, I don't think Robert De Niro and Cape Fear is coming for you anytime soon. No, no. It's funny. I don't know if I've ever seen that movie all the way through. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's one of Scorsese's I'm, not 
the best movie. It's not one of that Scorsese's best, is what I should say. Yeah, I found myself watching uh, the Irishman. Oh, I did. I started watching that again the other day too. Ironically, it's so freaking long though. Come on, man! I've actually had to break it up into chunks. It it, it I did watch it. It's two three pieces. and a half hours long. I watched it in two pieces, but I watched the right stuff the other day. It was three hours and fifteen minutes long. But the right stuff. Is another one of those movies, we were talking about this earlier in the podcast, The Right Stuff is actually one of those movies I can pick up at any point and enjoy watching it for 15 minutes or an hour or whatever. And if the opportunity presented itself this evening, I'd watch the entire movie again from the top because it's a great movie. It's on HBO Max, so you know. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, again, it's like um, when you do crime shows like this you, you do who killed or mind over murder and you talk about other cases and you talk about unsolved cases sure there's a chance that the guy is out there and he's listening to your podcast but yeah what a fucking idiot it would be to come attack you uh, i mean we've seen it and i mean it's not like we've never seen it before i mean we've seen it in the white national uh world where uh you know a radio host was murdered because he was uh you know of his ethnicity and, uh, and obviously, well, let's not start. Let's not pro- be promoting that. No, though. I'm just saying that you know we gotta <laughs> be we, fellow podcasters. I'm just trying to say that it's like we are safe. Yes, but there. Well, is- Kristen, Kristen Dilly, my wonderful co-host, is probably going to listen to this podcast and and say, "What were you and Huffman talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, you know, the reality is, I remember. The first time I talked about a case with uh, with a guy that I actually interned with, uh, Levon Putney from WTAM 1100 News Radio in Cleveland, and he had gone on to and still works for WCBS 880 in New York City. Oh yeah, and, I know uh, the station well. Yeah, so he's a big time news guy. Was the best, one of the best guys ever to be an intern with, and. Uh, we talked about a case because when we were in, when I was an intern, Shakira Johnson was murdered, and she was a mm-hmm. girl yes. in Cleveland. And we, I remember like doing the interviews with the chief of police in the fourth district, and it was definitely an interesting case. And so I had him on, and as we were talking, we were talking about the possible. You know, I can't believe. I want to say that somebody was held accountable, but they didn't get a very long sentence and yada, yada, yada. But basically the bottom line was the person we were talking about had just been released from jail. So we were like, oh, this is kind of weird. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be talking about oh, this. Oh, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Yeah, so that was kind of the day that I was like, hmm, I know that we do this, but it does kind of make you feel a little vulnerable at times. Yeah, I I, I I see it as as uh, as a privilege, and then you know we also talk about lots of other stuff too. You know, for instance, we just had Jamie Daring on, and she's uh, uh, has a brand new book out called Man, Madman in the Woods, which is all about her growing up next to Ted Kaczynski in the woods of Montana. And we just had her on Mind Over Murder, and she was absolutely fascinating. And, you know, obviously Ted Kaczynski's in jail, and he's... Right here in Colorado. No threat to her. 
Yeah, exactly. And but Mind Over Murder gives you a, a, such a wonderful opportunity, much in the same way your podcast series has, to talk to really interesting people. And we feel like it's a real privilege because we are able to talk about uh, the Colonial Parkway murders, but lots of other stuff. And as we meet interesting people, to introduce our audience to those individuals. And then at the same time, the listener is going along on a journey with us because we want to talk to really smart people so we can learn. And when you talk to these amazing experts, whether they're talking about forensics or investigative techniques or whatever it is, we're interested, our audience gets to sit in on that conversation. And I just feel like it's such a privilege to be able to listen and learn for both Kristen, Dilly, my podcast host and I, and to take the audience along on the journey. So it does feel like um, something that, uh, it feels like a real privilege to be able to do this. It is a privilege. We are very lucky to be able to talk about these cases. And uh, with Mind Over Murder, what has been the most interesting case that you have covered, other than the one that you obviously started with? Oh, gosh. Well, there's a couple of others that we haven't gotten into yet. I always feel like it's mm -hmm. the next one. For instance, um, uh, a guy had approached me a couple of years ago, a guy I met on the West Coast who has a lot of information about the Tylenol murders, which are still unsolved. Some people think the Tylenol murders were solved because there was an arrest made because a, a guy had tried to use the Tylenol murders as a way to um, blackmail someone. And so that guy was arrested, and there was some thinking that he might have been involved in the original case, although the thinking now is this guy wasn't involved, which means the killers in, or killer or killers in the Tylenol murders might have gotten away. And so I was approached by a guy who has a lot of new information on the case, and this is somebody that I've gotten to know pretty well. He's quite credible. And we may be getting into that case. And I thought to myself, gee, like I wasn't already off the FBI Christmas card list. Now I'm going to be talking about another unsolved case. That one is really interesting. And I did cover that one just not long ago. I think maybe mm -hmm. around. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I missed that. Yeah, I did. And uh, that is just crazy to think about the guy that would write the, the notes. But he had left town uh, mm -hmm. earlier. He wasn't even in the... Fiz, uh, the vicinity of the uh, crimes to when they had occurred because what they had believed is that somebody had bought the items, took them to their car, put the stuff in, brought them back, and put them back on the shelf. Right, right. So that would have had to happen. The cyanide was only good. It would have melted through the capsules, and so it had to have been done within that, like, 24-hour period. Yeah, fairly a uh, quick turnaround time, as I understand it. Yeah. And some you had to have some knowledge of, of uh, chemistry and... You would think. You know, 
in order to pull that off. The weird thing is about that guy is that he actually sh he would communicate with like the newspapers and would send them detailed pictures of how to do this. <laughs> it's like, well, dude, yeah. did you do it or didn't you do it? Like, what are you trying to say here? Yeah, well, and what's weird too is that, you know, now it's just accepted. You go to a, buy a product in a store and you open it up and it's got that foil cap on it and everything's got that tamper-proof packaging. People forget that's actually why they did this. That's how I opened my episode, actually. I go, you ever open up an, uh, a bottle uh -huh. of Tylenol I'll, and wonder why... I'll it's got the little thing on the top. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, everything. I mean, you know, open a jar of peanut butter and there's this elaborate <laughs> mechanism you've got to go through. Yeah. I'll go back and listen to your episode. I missed that one. Yeah, but I mean... It, it, it's a fascinating case. And we've had a lot of other really, really interesting uh, cases. We do try to continue to return to the Colonial Parkway murders as we have new developments in the case. But it's by far the not the only case we cover. We really do enjoy getting into other cases as well. Yeah, I definitely think that it's important. I mean, I started with the Amy Mahalovic case, and we did yeah. 20 episodes on that. And then, obviously, I did a few, you know, a few retrospective looks back you know look backs look backs i don't even god i can't even talk you know what i mean looking back at the case and uh yeah you got to keep that case as your main focus but you can't just continue to do episodes on that until there's actually some movement at least in my opinion like the, yeah, like, obviously, if you had a if you had significant developments in the Amy Mahalovic case, are you familiar all over it? Are you familiar with the Molly Bish case? Uh, I am, and uh, it's that's not far from that's why I was where we live now in Connecticut, mm -hmm. and uh, I've spoken to Heather, uh, her sister, several times, and I really admire her. She, yeah, I I'd like to have amazing. her on actually, because I did an episode, you know, I did briefly covered it not too long after I did the Amy stuff and mm. uh, now there's actually like movement in the case and you know the DNA test they're doing DNA tests right now yeah I'm, I'm I'm very hopeful that there'll be some movement and I just admire Heather tremendously she's done a lot of work um, we're right in the Connecticut Massachusetts border my family's from Massachusetts we live in Connecticut now just happened to be the house we fell in love with but um we're not terribly far apart and actually around the time of covid <laughs> heather and i were trying to get together because i always wanted to meet her and you know once i moved back up to new england i really wanted to um, spend time with her i remember the case when i was living in massachusetts and mm. I think that's a solvable case. I've talked to some of the private investigators who've worked on that case. They think they have the guy. Yeah, but can you prove it? That's what they're that's, testing right now. It's, yeah. I, but he's dead. So the the interesting thing is that the guy that they think it is looks damn like the... Uh, he does to me. Yeah, he yeah. looks really like the, the composite. Now, that's not to say that he is because we all know those are... <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I mean, look I know. at the Unabombers. Come on. <laughs> well, you know, look. Look at the Amy Mahalo. It's John Denver. A sketch, a sketch is only going to be as good as someone's memory. And eyewitnesses and, are, as we know, the worst witnesses. Yeah. I mean, I was going to the dump a little while ago. You know, we live in a small town. You got to go to the dump. Um, so <laughs> I don't know why I, that I take the <laughs> trash and recyclables, you know, throw them in the back of the Mini Cooper and take them to the. Um, That's right. Kate, uh, Kate did mention you had a Mini Cooper in the. <laughs> the tra- you take them to the transfer station. That's what they call it. Yes. So I'm leaving just, I don't know, an hour or two ago. Going to the transfer station. Got a Mini Cooper's worth of trash and recyclables. And um, there's a guy next door. And the guy's leaving the house. And it's not the person that lives there. And I, just as an exercise, I looked over at him. I waved at him to acknowledge that I saw him and that he saw me. He waved back. He was getting on a bicycle. And he left the house, and then actually he kind of fell in behind me as I pulled to the corner. And so I waited a second so he could ride his bicycle past because I did this just as an exercise. I thought to myself, hmm, that's not the guy that lives next door. I wonder who he is. And I sort of played a little game with myself. How much of his appearance could I recall from just a quick glance and me waving hello as I pulled out of the driveway. Now I happened to see him twice because then he rode past my car at the, at the stop sign. And then he went across by the town green and I turned left. But I did that just as an exercise because I wanted to see how much can I remember about that guy and that guy's appearance the, him, the jacket he was wearing, the bicycle, you know, the whole thing. Uh-huh. So when you think about these sketches created weeks or months later from people's memory of an, indiv- an individual, we both know how challenging that is to remember in good detail what someone looked like. So sometimes the sketches are remarkably similar to the individual once they're apprehended, and I hope they are. And sometimes they're not. And sometimes they look kind of generic because that's all the detail that that particular person could recall. I get how challenging that has to be. So it's always cool when you see a sketch later and you're like, damn, that actually looks pretty close to the guy they arrested. There's that, but you also have to have a good artist. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, I know. It's actually quite a skill. It's very and much. To, it's such a skill. To draw it out from that, um, that witness, you know, to the best of their memory, tell me about his hair and his eyes and his nose and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Unless somebody's super distinctive, I get how challenging that has to be. It's better than nothing. But for instance, you know, you look at the Delphi case, when they start out with one sketch 
And then a year goes by, and then they have a new press conference, and they show us a completely different sketch. And I've been very frustrated, and I've said this on the air. For the life of me, I can't figure out, because it was not adequately explained, and I don't think I'm stupid. Are we supposed to be looking for the first guy in the Delphi sketch, or the second guy, or is this the same guy with, you know, older, younger I, I'm confused. I find the whole thing so baffling. I, I don't know what happened. It's like they there was all this hubbub about what was going on, and then it's completely gone radio silent again. I don't know yeah. what was going on. Well, we've had some people contact us recently, I'm talking about in the last few weeks, who are insisting that there could be a relationship between one of the people that's been regarded on the short list of possible suspects in the Delphi case and the Colonial Parkway case because of an unusual email address that this guy has used, which actually reads Colonial Parkway Killer One. And he's used it twice on two different platforms. That's odd to me, how would somebody end up choosing Colonial Parkway Killer 1, the numeral 1, on two different email platforms? And now this guy's on a, li a short list of people that are regarded as potentially involved in the Delphi case. Now, Delphi, Indiana and Williamsburg, Virginia are hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. I don't get how there could be a connection unless there's military service or some other thing that would bring that guy from his home in Indiana to the Tidewater area of Virginia. But it's interesting nonetheless. But we follow a lot of different cases. We report on a fair number of cases. But um, I don't think there's ever any lack of worthwhile cases to discuss. Yeah. It's uh it's very interesting. Uh the whole thing's uh it seems like a clusterfuck at this point. I mean, it just <laughs> I, it just does. Agreed. I mean, if it's the guy that owned the property and that's what they made it sound like when uh the one particular podcast did that episode on it. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that's correct. I know I did an update on it as well because it seemed like a legitimate lead, but like again, radio silence since then. And you would think yeah, that they I, would test that DNA to that DNA. Like the, the, that yeah. time shouldn't take, that shouldn't be like a month long process. Yeah. Um, I get frustrated. I remember when I met Kelsey, Kelsey. Yeah, she's uh, German, excuse me. Um, she's an absolutely lovely young lady who just got married and just graduated from college. Yep, I remember great. when I first met her at CrimeCon, you know, four or five years ago for the first time. I saw her again a few weeks ago. One of the things I said to Kelsey was, I don't want you to be me in 30 years, still looking for answers in your sister's murder. You know, that's it. And now it's been what five, six years, probably. Yeah, since Delphi. Yeah, it's uh, going on. It's 
past five years. So, yeah, um, I, I think we're I think we're into cl- six. You know, heading for six. Yeah. And I get very frustrated, and I'm saddened when I see a young woman like Kelsey who's had to grow up with this as part of her life now. You know, she was a high school student. Now she's graduated from college. And she's still working this case, and you know she's young enough to be my my daughter. You know, oh. I have a I have a son, a son her age, and I'm completely pulling for her, and I'm in her corner. But I really don't want Kelsey German to be Bill Thomas looking for answers 35 years later. That part scares me. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what you've become in the true crime world you're kind of an advocate for everybody um people look at you and they see your advocacy towards the colonial parkway case and i think they can relate especially if their sibling has been killed and there's really not been much action by the authorities and they can look at you and find some you know something to be inspired by and i think that's something that you know this incredible talent that you obviously can't teach somebody and not everybody's going to be willing to talk about these things, but you're very open and honest about your feelings and you talk very clearly about your sister and it's, it's just, it's a good thing for people who have lost individuals to know that people like you are out there and that you're not just advocating for yourself, but you're advocating for them. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that. As I like to say, I'm just a stubborn Irish kid from Boston who's too thick-headed to drop the the topic. <laughs> and there's probably a little bit of that, but again, that's how <laughs> things get done in this world. You know, you got to beat your head against the glass until you get the answers. Sometimes, and um, unfortunately. There isn't uh, a quick fix to a lot of these issues that we've discussed over these past two episodes. And I think it's really uh, important to bring these issues to light, though. And it is um, it is a great thing that you're doing with your show. And again, I just think it is important for everybody who's listening to continue to look at the cases that are older, uh, that don't maybe get the attention that they deserve as well as, you know, you can clearly focus and look at the stuff that's happening in this day and age. But again, 250,000 unsolved, unsolved homicides in this country. That's a lot of families that need answers. So I just think that, um, we just got to keep it going, and that's all we can do. <laughs> you know, there's no quick fix, but I guess if the squeaky wheel gets the grease, then we just got to keep squeaking. That's us. Hey. I like it. Yeah. I mean, do you have anything uh, that you would like the listeners to know about Kathy or uh, about the case that uh, maybe the current, well, current I, situation? I think. I'm actually increasingly optimistic in the Colonial Parkway murders. I feel like we may be making some strides there if we can uh, keep our friends 
with the FBI and the Virginia State Police moving forward. So I am very optimistic. And then for those people who never met Kathy, which is most of us, you just have to understand that uh, my younger sister was an amazing uh, person and uh, deserves all of this. Uh, and it's um, something that uh, I'm sure would be reciprocated if the situation were reversed. At the same time, I know that Kathy would be embarrassed by all of this discussion, but that was her modest nature. So it's, uh, if you knew my sister, you knew why I'm still plugging away here. So big brother, Bill, um, stop talking. <laughs> Quit spilling my dirty laundry. <laughs> <laughs> and I really appreciate all the, um, uh, expressions of support that you've given us and well it's not just um, me i mean I, you see it on social media and you see people i mean i've had people reach out and say and i think you saw it you know like the episodes with bill with thomas are just great because he's just such an incredible advocate and again that's well, true so we're not telling you. we're not blowing smoke man <laughs> <laughs> but uh well th thank you bill yeah so again thank you so much for uh coming on who killed and uh, do hope that there is some movement in the colonial parkway case. And I hope and expect you to come back on when that is the case. And we do need, Absolutely. To, we do need to do a crossover with, uh, I need to come on mind over murder. One of these days. We would love that. I talked to Kristen about it and she loves the idea. So we'll work out the scheduling. All right. Fabulous. All right. Well, thanks again, Bill. You're awesome. Thank you. Hit stop. And that will do it. Thank you. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. <laughs>